The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. Hi, I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's Editor-in-Chief. Welcome to This is Working the Podcast, where my colleague Nina Melendez and I discuss a conversation I had with a thought leader or business titan from my LinkedIn video series, This is Working. Nina and I then take that conversation, we dissect it, put our own spin on it, and then we extract our top takeaways for you, the listener. And here is Nina now. Hey, Nina. Hi, Dan. Dan, we are mid-October now. Yes. Time is flying. It's true. Listen... Halloween's coming up. <laughs> Do you dress up? Well, I was going to ask you. Oh, I got you there first. <laughs> My answer is going to be dependent on how you answer. Okay, so okay. now that you asked me, I will say that I do like to dress up for Halloween. Really? What's I, your best costumes you've ever done? I was a pumpkin one one year. Okay. This year, I think I'm going to go be Frida Kahlo. Nice. Yeah. Oh, that's a really good one. Yeah. I don't dress up typically. Okay. Or ever, really. But I'll, I'll spend a lot of time trying to make my kids' costumes. Yeah. Wait, so did you not dress up when you were a kid? I dressed up when I was a kid. I was a, uh, I remember doing like a heavy metal star one time. That was a big one. Okay. Yeah. When I grew up in Kentucky. It was like you walked around the neighborhood yeah. and, you know, every house was the you know, biggest holiday of the year. Yeah. Most important holiday of the year it's by so far. It's so fun. So fun. Yeah. Um. I have no transition to <laughs> to who we are talking about today, but I'm super excited. You had you a do? conversation yeah. with Kristalina Georgieva. Oh, sorry. That is the transition? That is the transition. Okay. <laughs> she is the director of the IMF, and she used to be the CEO of the World Bank. Um, she's a fascinating lady, and you had such a great conversation with her several weeks ago. Yeah, she was really amazing, and I think that Kristalina's background coming from a country behind the Iron Curtain is a very different way of looking at how a career is structured and a very different way of looking at what the role of the IMF is. She grew up in a country that benefited from the IMF rather than being in a country that funded the IMF. Mm -hmm. And so that gives her empathy. And she talks a lot about this empathy with the experience of having the IMF come in and making certain demands. And I think that she works with the IMF and her employees differently because of that. Mm -hmm. I loved what she said when she said, I, I know the pains of inflation. I've seen, you know, entire savings just get wiped out because of inflation. So that really gives her, like you said, a sense of empathy in a way that is crucial for her position. Last time on the show, we talked about having fun at work and about how being in the trenches in difficult times can really foster this sort of camaraderie with your fellow coworkers and stuff. I thought about that when you talked with Kristalina about how she builds unity within her team that is such a diverse and international organization. But let's take a listen to what she said. We are a mirror image of the countries that are members. In other words, we have nationalities, countries countries have their people at the front. Mm -hmm. Meaning that we have all these different cultures and they mix, not always they match. <laughs> so what is so important for a multicultural organization is to create fairness through processes. So you, can have a voice in decision-making and you know that you have that voice. 
also make sure that people interact with each other professionally, but they also interact socially. That was very difficult during COVID. Mm -hmm. But even during COVID, we would have Zoom happy hours. Not sure how happy it was, but, but make an effort to bring people together and create that sense of camaraderie. Now, at the IMF, we have a, a magic bullet. It is called acting at the time of crisis. We are at our best when the world is in its worst. Hmm. Because our mission is to step up and help protect macroeconomic and financial stability. In other words, protect the world from unraveling. This, you have no idea how mobilizing is this sense of responsibility that what we do matters to people's lives. That if we act swiftly, it is virtually a difference between life and death for some. And that mobilization is uh, so overwhelming that we put aside differences when this call comes. <laughs> and it came, I mean, if you look at this last year's, it, the first unthinkable event was COVID. Second unthinkable event, war on European soil. Third unthinkable, prices jumping up, inflation returning with gusto, and interest rates uh, jumping up very quickly. So you then see the, the IMF being this uh, first responder in, in a crisis uh, and, and people coming uh, together uh, with, with the strength uh, that, uh, that makes me very proud. Hmm. Kristalina used the interesting phrase there of the magic bullet. Mm -hmm. That idea of a crisis as being something that brings people together mm -hmm. and of a company or organization that reacts well in a crisis, I don't think every organization is like that. For most companies, they don't want to always exist in crisis. Mm -hmm. But there are certain companies or organizations where that's part of what you do. Mm -hmm. You know, I, if you are a firefighter, I assume that you are waiting. These moments of crisis is when you build your bonds and when mm -hmm. you show what you can do and you put your skills to use. In the newsroom, it is super common to, mm -hmm. uh, to, to act your best during a crisis. Mm -hmm. For the IMF, it's the same. One of the things I'm trying to figure out is, are there certain kinds of employees who say, I want to be at a place that is always fighting fires? Or do you forge a kind of employee out of a situation like that? Mm. Or do you pick a profession where you are someone who is like, I work best in a crisis? Or do you learn how to work best in a crisis and you can train anyone how to do it? I think that's a great question. I think it's a little bit of both. Like, I didn't think I ever operated well in a crisis. And then I became a journalist and I worked in a newsroom. And I remember walking into CNN when there was the shooting that happened at Sandy Hook and walking in and being like, there was a shooting at an elementary school. And we all had to just like, boom, you know, go into crisis mode and how we're going to cover it. And the same thing when the Sandusky trial happened, you remember? And, sure. and then and they were going to come out, they came out with the verdict and we had to like read through the hundreds and hundreds of pages. What about you? You worked in a newsroom. Were you always drawn to solving crises or just intense moments? Yeah, I love that. I feel like I'm at my best when things are going their worst. That is, I like operating in that kind of environment. It is, I find it fun and challenging and it brings people together. Yeah. And I found myself nodding my head when she talked about this idea of mobilizing and going after something. 
because you don't have time to deal with office politics. You don't have time to like, what is this person doing? Why? What, what's their incentive for doing this and not and someone else's incentive for doing that? Like you have one thing that you're trying to solve and yeah. everyone's in it together. And that's fun and clarifying. And I like working like that. How do you hire for that? I have no idea. I think that I would say that I definitely don't hire for that. Mm. But I, I look for it when these kind of crises happen, and I lean on people who are good in those kind of situations. Hmm. I find myself turning to that. I know that when a crisis happens, who I can say, all right, we're in this, let's go. We have This is our Tiger team. Mm-hmm. We're going to go after this. Mm-hmm. We can get this done. And it's mm-hmm. fun to watch people who can clear their plates and say, all right, I'm going to go and tackle this one problem that has to be solved yeah. by the end of the week. Yeah. I'm not sure, by the way, this is the way I like operating like that. I'm not yeah. sure it's good for anybody. Afterwards, how do you feel? Do you feel like energized or do you feel exhausted? Energized. When I go home on days like that, I'm like, ah, oh, that was a great day. Mm-hmm. And I find myself like checking my phone, like, what happened? Did we get it right? Did, mm-hmm. what, is something else going to happen? So mm-hmm. I don't know if that's weird or normal or unusual, but uh, for I, me, it works. I, you know, I took some time off for journalism and I missed it. Mm. I missed being in the newsroom and I missed things crossing and trying to get things out fast and prioritizing and I enjoyed it. Yeah. But what I'm saying is like, I never knew I did. I always thought I was a pretty chill, relaxed person. And then when a crisis hits, I go on, I turn on, yeah. I get into like full, like, all right, how are we going to do this guys? You know? Right. So for Kristalina, her background is in economy. Right. How does someone like that gear up for problems that require so much crisis management? It's a great question. You know, this weekend I saw a friend I hadn't seen in a long time and we were talking about this topic. He's a consultant. And he said he really found that he hates being in situations where he's asked to make decisions quickly. He's someone who likes to sit with the data. He likes to analyze it. He likes to do models. And he would get frustrated Mm. when he was just told, you know, in a meeting, come up with an answer right now. And he's like, Mm. that's not how he operates. It's Mm. not, he doesn't want to operate well in a crisis. He likes to study the problem. I think it's important for an organization to have people who can do both. And I wonder in our society today that is very fast moving, or maybe this is part of just being in a tech company, maybe this doesn't exist everywhere, but I certainly find myself being in meetings where by the end of it, we want to have a decision made. Yeah. And Bob Pittman talked about this in our interview with him also, which is that he heavily relies on make the decision quickly. He is a big believer in make the decision. We can always make another different decision at some other point, but the key is making a decision. And I think that kind of harms people who aren't able to operate or don't want to operate well in a crisis. And I wonder if that is leaving out these kind of deep thinkers and data sifters. Something to think about. Is there a fear, I wonder, of making the wrong decision? And that's why people like to sit and ponder and look at data in a way. Is it it the wrong decision or is it, maybe this is the same thing, but it's sort of like the decision, we'll make a better decision if we can have more time to look at a bunch of different aspects of it. Then right. maybe the decision, it's not the wrong decision, but a better decision could be made if we just had this other bit of data. And someone like Bob Pittman would say, well, we've lost time. Exactly. I'd rather trade, Bob Pittman would trade time for perfection. Right. He would rather have time than perfection. I think there's another aspect to consider when we talk about an organization or people always acting under crisis. And we'll get back to that after the break. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. 
In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. You were talking about the, the side effect of always operating under pressure, and that's, of course, burnout. Yeah. Right? Like, people can burn out very quickly when they're having to operate at 100%, 100% of the time. And you asked Christina this, which I thought was brilliant. Let's see what she says. We uh, did have uh, burnouts over the last years. So we did three things. One, uh, discipline of doing what is a must, not what is good to do. Two, asking people to take blocks of time off. Hmm. I have introduced twice in the year a block of time to recharge. Christmas, New Year, in this period of time, we close the fund. Nothing particularly big happens. Now, if it happens, of course, we will, we will come to work right away, but give this time to people. And uh, during the summer, our board of directors goes in recess. In this period of time, close the fund, practically. Uh, very much appreciated by, by staff. And uh, my intention is to keep it uh, like that because we are in tough times. The pressure on staff will continue. Three, pay attention to where the burnouts happen. In a big organization, you always have 20% of the people doing three times more than their share of work. It's always like this. Protect these people. Make sure that them <laughs> managers pay attention to them. We also got... Uh, more attuned to what what did COVID bring? COVID actually brought uh, mental illness. So we have adopted a, a um, new, more proactive approach to dealing with mental illness. I went to the troops talking about my own experience, my relatives, myself being stressed, Encourage people not to feel ashamed. That happens. And when it happens, speak up. So taking your people as family, I do feel like uh, 
that motherly side of me steps up. It is really, really important. And convey to people that we are in this together. If you need help, you can ask for help and help will come true. Dan, in your opinion, is burnout caused by the way companies are organized or do you think that it is a problem on how each individual can or cannot handle time management or their workload? I think it's more the second. Hmm. In well-run companies, I do think it is much more on the employee to be able to manage their own burnout. Mm -hmm. But that is really dependent on being in a good organization that is listening to their employees. As Mm -hmm. Kristalina said, I loved her quote, if you have 20% of the people doing three times more than their share of work, protect those people. A good company will identify and protect those people and make sure that they are being heard. Now, I think that it is up to the employee. A manager can't know necessarily when someone is burning out. Everyone has a different threshold. Mm. And we've talked about this in the past, this idea of like you can't expect your manager to be a mind reader. They don't know what's going on. They've got a million things that are happening. They're trying to watch for everybody. Or maybe they're not watching anybody. Who knows how good the manager is. But you have to advocate for yourself. Mm. And I don't think that you need to necessarily go and say, I'm burning out. But you have to take vacation time. And you have to. And we know that people don't take vacation time. All of our data at LinkedIn shows that we've run these surveys. People are nervous about taking vacation time or they don't want to take vacation time or they feel guilty even about taking vacation time. You got to take vacation time. You have to turn off your phones when you go home. And maybe you come back on at a certain point, but you have to take breaks from your work. And you can't expect, I don't think, the manager to be the person to tell you all of this. Now, this is super easy for me to say. And I think that if you live in a world where you're nervous about getting a raise or staying employed or where you're going to go next, it is easy just to say, I'm going to keep working. The only solution here is for me to keep working all the time. But with the ability to look back, I don't think that's actually a good thing for people to be doing. And I think that you have to manage your own careers because no one else will do it for you. You have to manage your own time. You have to manage your own life. And you have to then set expectations. And I think that's the only way you get out of burnout. You know, this makes me think, where do people learn how to be employees? How do we learn how to operate as an employee, how to manage up, how to talk to your manager, how do you talk to your coworkers? So where does one learn how to do that? Number one, LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> there is a lot of investment made in managers and how mm-hmm. to train managers. Yeah. But to your point, there is very little training that is done at the individual level on how to be successful when you are starting off at a company. What would you say are the three things a young professional needs to know to be successful? And I'm talking about in their 20s, they're starting their career. Yeah, I would say find somebody that you trust that can give you really good feedback and try to build that relationship. That is different than going and asking for someone to be your mentor. It is finding someone in just that you can bounce ideas off. Am I doing this right? Am I doing this wrong? What do you Mm. think? What have you experienced? Two is I would say know what you want and try to have some kind of a North Star and point yourself towards that rather than letting someone else guide your own career. Mm. Um, You should know where you want to go next and what's important because people are always going to be hijacking your time Mm. and you should really guard your time You should really be super careful about how you are using your time. You never get that back. People will hijack your dreams, too. They'll say, oh, why do you want to do this? You're really good at this. So they can lead you in a direction you don't want to go if you don't don't stand your ground. I just interviewed Spike Lee last week. He talked a lot about this, about Mm. getting your dreams hijacked 
by your parents, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. So I don't want to spoil it. But yes, uh, your your career dreams for sure, that can change. And I don't know what the third one is. I'll have it for you by next episode. Okay. Okay, cool. All right. Yeah. So that quote on 20% of the people doing three yeah. times more, I loved that part. And I'm I'm glad you brought it up. What do you, what is the antidote to that? I think this is a natural distribution. And if you were trying to get 100%, everyone doing an equal share, you are setting yourself up for failure because I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think it's really? realistic. So you have to find that 20%. I think that Kristalina was dead on. It is 20% is exactly right. Maybe 25, I don't know. But how is there is there nothing to do about that? Is that you're always going to have people picking up the pieces for other people? I don't think it's a question of picking up the work for other people. I think that it is 20% who is so efficient that they are doing three times the work. It's not like they are making up for work that other people do. It's they're so good at what they do that it's like having three people on the job. And and they're naturally that way. Is it like like yeah. how people are operating in crisis? Like they just naturally step up to the plate and do it. They get things faster. They're more efficient with their time. But the other part I would say is that, that those people who are the 20, 25% club, mm-hmm. they have an impact on the rest of the team. And so what they can do is help someone who was only going to do one times the work, do one and a half times. They end up being culture carriers mm-hmm. or setting the bar high for other people. And you want everyone to see that. They might not be able to do three times the work, but they can see that they need to do more. They understand what it takes to get ahead here. They see who's being rewarded and they start trying to live up to that as well. So you want to have on your team as many of these bar raisers as possible Hmm. um, because I think it makes other people do more too. Yeah. I don't see this as a failure at all. I don't see this as saying that your team has a lot of fat. It is just a reality of who's doing work Hmm. and this 20% that is doing three times more than their share of work can help inspire everyone else to do even more. And I think that's a good thing. Hmm. We mentioned this at the beginning of the show. One of the unique things about Kristalina is her background. She grew up in Soviet-controlled Bulgaria, high inflation. She had to deal with rations for her food. This was the reality of her life, waking up super early in the morning to go line up for food. And it really influenced how she thinks about leading and policymaking. So let's listen to what she has to say. If anybody was to tell me when I was living on the other uh, you know, side of the Iron Curtain that I'll be the managing director of the IMF, I would have laughed my head off. Believe that you can get to a place where you flourish, your talents are fully deployed. Second, to be very blunt, bust your butt. (laughs) That doesn't fall from the sky. You have to work really hard. Mm -hmm. Uh, And third, be open to other ideas and always be willing to bring even more talented people to work with you. You can only be as good as the team you assemble. And best of luck. I can tell you, Getting to a job like mine means that you really have to buckle up. Hmm. But I always thought that I have to give my very best to whatever job I have. And that I am taking energy from it, being hardworking, successful woman. Uh, What I do know is that I have always stepped up to whatever challenge is presented. And I would make this decision like this. 
three o'clock in the morning. My phone in Washington, D.C. rings. The prime minister of Bulgaria is calling me, asking me to go and be the Bulgarian commissioner in Brussels on a different continent, in a different country. By eight o'clock in the morning, I made my decision. In one week, I was there. So advice to people, when uh, opportunity comes, do not hesitate. Maybe you're taking some risk. Do it. Because only if you stretch yourself, you step up. Only then you know what is your full potential. I loved so much about what she said here. I loved when she said, when opportunity comes, do not hesitate. Um, I thought that is just such great advice. And maybe if we go back to those three things you would tell a young, a young person in their career, I think this could fall easily under one of those three. You know, when opportunity comes, don't hesitate because you never know when that opportunity will come again. Can you imagine what it must have been like to get that phone call? And then make a decision by 8 o'clock. I guess one thing to make when opportunity comes, yeah. jump on it. But when opportunity comes, when you're still in dreamland, yeah. that's another level here. I mean, Kristalina is operating, you know, at a different level than the rest of us. Yeah. Um, but but if, yeah, you yeah. Get a, if you get a call from the prime minister of your country, yeah. I have a feeling you just sort of take that. You take the mission. Yeah. I don't know. I have to, like, I was impressed with her decision making, but I don't know that I agree with her. Hmm. Because going back to what we discussed earlier and your point about people hijacking your dreams is you kind of have to know where you want to go. Mm -hmm. And there are times where, in this case, the and maybe you, when the prime minister of Bulgaria calls, you do have to actually follow that. But there are other times where people are going to come to you with something that fits their needs or the corporation's need yeah. or the you know your future employer's needs that doesn't align with what you were trying to achieve in your life. Yeah. And, and maybe this is still the point. You make the quick decision and you say, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. But just because someone who's high ranking or important comes to you with an offer yeah. doesn't mean you should always take it. Yeah. And there have been times in my own career where I've had opportunities come from people who were very influential. And I came very close to taking them because of the person who was making the offer. And it was a great title. Mm. And I was like, oh, this would be so cool. And then I started talking to people I trusted, and they asked very good questions like, what comes next? Hmm. Where does that lead to? What's the one step after you take that job? So I would just say, like, and, and maybe in this case, if someone had come to me at 3 in the morning and asked me that, I would have realized that intuitively and said no. But it's super tempting when you get someone high-ranking with a lot of power who's going to give you a lot of power to just immediately say yes. So do you think that people should make career decisions always thinking about that next not the immediate Absolutely. option in front of them, but the one that comes after? 100%. Uh, couldn't, with no hesitation. Really? You always have to think about what comes next. What is this? And even if you're wrong, at least have an idea about where this should lead you next. And talk to other people. Like, am I thinking about this right? Am I thinking about it wrong? But yeah, I could not hmm. uh, emphasize that more strongly. Because otherwise you, what, you waste time? Yeah, exactly. You waste time. You get skills that aren't that useful aren't to relevant. you. Yeah, yeah. they aren't relevant. And, and I think you can be so seduced by the job at hand or the title or the money that you don't like what happens if you get fired or you hate it. Yeah. Then you're scrambling to get back onto the path that you wish you had been on. Yeah. I think that's why having a true north is really important. Yeah. Like if you have a sort of, even if it's somewhat nebulous, but you know of a certain direction you want to go, that at least can inform these decisions. 100%. So that you're staying within those guardrails. So I think like one big takeaway from Kristalina is that she is really good in moments of crisis or moments of instant opportunity. She handles the 3 a.m. call. She handles these countries that are falling apart. This is how she likes to work. Mm. So I would love to learn from 
anyone who is listening to this, watching this, is that the way you like to live? How do you do in an emergency? Is it important to be able to live inside of a fire? You know, are you someone who, like that famous cartoon, you're sitting around, you got the coffee mug, there's fire all around you, this is fine. Is that you? This is fine. Or is that something that you absolutely hate? Let me know on LinkedIn using the hashtag thisisworking or send us your voice. Make a voice memo on your cell phone and email it to us at thisisworking at linkedin.com. Either way, you might hear your contributions in an upcoming episode. And please share this podcast episode with a friend and review it. It helps new listeners find us. If you'd like to hear the full conversation between Dan and Kristalina, check the show notes. We'll link to it there. This is Working is a LinkedIn editorial production. Our production team includes Sarah Storm, Stephen Valdivia, Asaf Gidron, Taisha Henry, and Andres Cordona. Joe Giorgi mixes our show. Enrique Montalvo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Our head of original programming is Courtney Coop. I'm Nina Melendez, senior producer. And I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. Be well and stay curious. Thank you.